0: Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa afdoolu salati wa atamu taslimi ala Sayyidina Muhammadin al-Sadiq al-Ameen. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man astanna bi sunnatihi ila yawm al Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una, wa anfa'na bima allamtana, wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'aleema, innaka ala kulhi shay'in qadiru ba'd. Alhamdulillah. So this is our September session of Ask the Imam. And we have about five questions we're going to address. The first question the questioner says, Salam, I just listened to your podcast, I think that's the khutbah, regarding our stance on abortion. It is mentioned many times that it is haram to kill your child if you fear poverty. I understand this but I was asked, what if you were raped or violated via incest? I don't know how to answer this question. So before I begin, to answer the first part, it wasn't a podcast, it was two khutbas I gave on the issue of abortion, and I didn't address this issue because the khutbah was not a legal discourse on the ins and outs of abortion in the Related ahkam. Oh, it came through the podcast. Okay. That I didn't know. Okay, so before answering the question on abortion in cases of rape or incest, I want to say right out the gate that our religion, our deen of Al Islam, teaches us to be principled and to return all issues to their scriptural sources and the arch rules and principles, the usul, the qawaid, the tawabit, all of the issues that we may discuss regarding matters of law go through the fundamentals and the foundations and the principles. What that means is that we try to understand the exceptions in light of the norms, because the scriptural evidence and the fundamental maxims and guidelines give us the legal norms and it's through that framework that we understand the exceptions now this sounds a little theoretical but what i mean is our way is that we understand the extreme circumstances in light of the norm we don't do it the other way around the other way around is when you look at exceptions and you overstate them, and you try to discuss the issue through the framework of the exception instead of the norm. So it is the way of the people of desires, of shahwat, of ahwa that they overstate the exceptions in order to override the moral foundations and norms. But ahlul haq, They look at the exceptions through the prism of the norms. So abortion is a good example of this because if we were to believe the pro-choice rhetoric, we would say that abortion is just about the health of women, so-called reproductive health, where carrying the child to full term would lead to a threat to the woman's health and well-being. But we have to question that assumption. Is that true? Is it true that abortion, by and large, is just about reproductive health and saving the life of the woman? We have to challenge that. We have to look at the data and determine if that is true or not. And when we look at the data, we see that less than 1% of all abortions are due to rape and even less are due to incest. So we're looking at an extreme anomaly. We're looking at the exception and not the norm. So before we even mention the ruling on abortion due to rape or incest, we have to point out this deception, how these word games are played where the pro-abortionist will always talk about rape and incest. They always throw that out as if that's the norm and the underlying cause for the vast majority of abortions, when the reality is the overwhelming majority of abortions are what we call elective abortions. They're not due to rape, by and large, or incest. And they don't even compare to, the elective abortions are far outweigh the abortions that are legitimately to save the life of the mother. And then it's a question of language. The the pregnancy that occurs due to a, a congenital defect is that the same thing as an abortion when they remove that fetus. Anyhow, getting to the question itself, what is the ruling in Islam on a woman getting an abortion if she is pregnant due to rape or incest? So as far as Islamic law is concerned, it is true that there are various opinions about the exact moment the soul is breathed into the fetus, what we call ar-ruh or insoulment. You have the famous position of the majority, which is that the insoulment occurs at 120 days. You have the Maliki view and some others that insoulment occurs at 40 days. Both of those positions use the very same hadith as their proof. They differ because of the nature of the language and what thumma means uh, as a conjunction. Anyhow, the soul is breathing to the fetus either at 120 days or at 40 days. So there's different views about that and there's also different views about the excuses that would make it allowed for a woman to have an abortion before the either 120 or the 40 days. When you go back to most of the classical text among the Fuqaha, you're not not gonna find a lot of detailed discussions about the excuses that would allow for a woman to get an abortion before 40 days or before 120 days. Uh, Most of them don't go into discussions on that most of that discussion you will find is among contemporary jurists. Contemporary fuqaha are most likely to discuss the circumstances where an abortion would be permitted, provided it is before 40 days or 120 days. Now, what we find in the older classical text and among the fuqaha today is the position that abortion post 120 would be forbidden unless there is an extreme exception where there's a direct threat to the life of the mother. But in cases of rape or in cases of incest, we have some details about when it would be allowed provided it was before either 40 or 120 days, depending on the view one is taking. So basically, if a woman was raped and she gets pregnant to do this rape, and she carries the fetus past that period of, of insolment. it would not be allowed for her to get an abortion at that stage because she was raped. That's a wrong done to her. It's a great thulm. And she got pregnant. It wasn't her choice. But once she's carried that fetus past the period of insolvent, that is a human life. And just because a crime was done to her, it does not legitimize her doing a crime to another human life. Just because she was wronged, doesn't mean now, at this stage in the pregnancy, pregnancy, she can wrong this other human being. If it's prior to that period, that's where we're gonna find the fuqaha, contemporary fukaha allowing it. But they have some guidelines. So, you know, one crime isn't justifying another crime. If the fetus is pre-insoulment, so the woman is raped, she's pregnant, and this is before the insolment period, she is allowed to abort the fetus based on the principle that needs, may at times take the role of necessities, Al-hajja. تَنْزِلْ مَنزِلَ barura Needs can take the place of being necessities at times. But this is assuming that the rape is verified and is considered an actual rape where she was under duress, where she was under اِكْرَة. It has to be. This means it was an actual rape, and it was not just a post- Consensual fornication regret Because you have instances where people regret Being with someone And they sometimes claim this. this This does happen in different places It has to be verified It has to be a clear rape And this means that the woman Who is going to abort the fetus due to rape Was mukraha She was under duress Under ikra. She was basically under compulsion. And the Fuqaha lay out some details when they describe the person who was under duress. They say, number one, the rapist threatening her must be capable of carrying out his threats. And the woman who was under duress must be unable to run away or fight him off. If she's able to run away or fight him off, but chooses not to, she's not really under duress. There was a choice made. Number two, they say she has to be reasonably certain that she will be grievously harmed or killed if she resists. That has to be there. Number three, they say there cannot be any indications, any qara'in that indicate her cooperation and consent. What would that look like? I'm not entirely sure, but there could be qara'in and four, they say, the threat has to be immediate. It cannot be one where the so-called rapist threatens to rape her next week or threatens to, sorry, threatens to harm her next week if he does not have her his way with her right now. If the threat is for a future date, she has time to get away. So if she is with him in that moment based on a threat projected into the future, it's not really duress. So these are some basic guidelines. If she fulfills all of these, and she was raped, legitimately raped, she was under duress, and it's not her fault. She's a victim. If in that circumstance, she learns that she is pregnant, and she wants to abort the fetus, she should elect to do so as soon as possible and not allow it to carry on past the point of insolment. Because if she carries it past the point of insolment, which we're relating the two positions, either 40 days as the most conservative or 120 days according to the majority, if she was to do it after that, she would be taking a life. And a crime done to her does not justify her doing a crime to another human life. And again, this is definitely a rare occurrence. And so we address the question and we answer it, recognizing that often that question is just a distraction. So yes, in our Islamic law, we do have some guidelines for when that will be allowed. But we should not let, you know, in the people arguing and debating back and forth about abortion, pro-choice versus pro-life, you should not cede ground to the pro-choice crowd and allow them to cite rape and incest as if it is the, uh, the norm for the majority of abortions, the underlying reason for the majority. It's not. They have to be challenged on the data. The majority of them are because people don't, do not want to have a child, even though they were not raped, they were not subject to incest, their lives are not threatened, They just don't want to have the kid, or they feel they cannot afford to take care of the kid. And so they kill, they they want to elect to kill the child, khashat imlaq, out of fear of poverty. Exactly what Allah describes in the Quran. Wallahu a'lam. Okay, next question. On a a lighter note, this question says, Salaamu alaikum." in your Eid al-Adha khutbah, podcast. You said liberation through obedience. Please elaborate with examples. Wa alaykum as So I, I can't remember exactly when I got this question but it was a while back. So to the questioner I apologize. So they're asking about the title of the khutbah given on Eid al-Adha liberation through obedience. I think it's helpful to look at the Arabic analogs to terms like freedom and liberation. What is the word in Arabic for freedom? And what is the word for liberation in Arabic? If we look at the word liberation, we have tahrir, which is to render someone or to assist someone into a state of hurriya, freedom, to liberate them, to free them. So we have these terms uh, tahrir and hurriya. The term hurriya is actually a mustalah. It's a technical term. We have technical terms used in the science of grammar, in fiqh, in aqeedah, and usul and so on. And likewise hurriya is a technical term, a mustalah, used in the science of ihsan, of suluk, of tasawwuf. And hurriya as a very specific spiritual term has been defined in a couple of different ways. We go back to one of the earliest works that define some of these spiritual terms. We look at the Risala of Imam Al-Qushayri, Rahimahullah. Imam Al-Qushayri, he says, when talking about Hurriya or freedom, he says it should be known that the real meaning of freedom lies in the perfection of ubudiyah, of servitude to Allah. He says, anyone who imagines that it may be granted to a human being to give up his or her servitude for a single moment and disregard the commands and prohibitions of the Sharia, while having discretion and responsibility, they have left Islam. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, to his Prophet wasallam, وَعْبُدْ رَبَّكَ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَكَ Worship your Lord until certainty comes to you. And it is the consensus of the scholars of tafsir that this verse refers to Yaqeen. Here refers to Mawt, passing away into the next realm. That means worship your Lord until Yaqeen comes to you, until death comes to you. This is how he defines hurriya. Hurriya is freedom through servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A much later scholar also spoke about hurriya and gave what I feel a more precise definition. Sayyidi Ahmad ibn Ajiba al hassani rahimahullah, he writes in his work Mi'raj al-Tashawwuf which is a small work on these mustalahat he talks about hurriya or freedom and he says that freedom is to purify ourselves inwardly of the love of what is not God until nothing remains that is not for him. So freedom in this definition means freedom, freeing ourselves from the aghyar, these alterities, freeing yourselves from the bonds of dunya, the bonds of shaitan, of the nafs, of hawa, of shahawat, and being free of all of the constraints so that you are liberated from everything other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is Hurriya according to this definition. So it's basically being free so that of all of these things so that you have everlasting freedom that endures into all of eternity. That is how they look at the word hurriya Compare their definition of hurriya to how people define it now. Freedom today is basically the freedom to do whatever you want as long as you don't break the most important rule, as long as you don't hurt anyone. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. So this is the meaning of f- liberation through obedience, the title of the Eid Khutbah. The idea of attaining freedom through living the life that Allah has commanded us to live. That's the only way. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be imprisoned in various ways. Either you're imprisoned through the shackles of dunya, or the shackles of shaitan, or the shackles of shahawat, of desires, or the shackles of ahwa all of these various enemies of the human being. So to have true freedom is to be released from the bonds of these things that keep us away from our Lord Subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the that's the answer to that question. Okay. Question 3 is a fiqhi question and this questioner is from Tallinn. Does anyone know where Tallinn is? It's a capital city. Mm. Someone knows their geography. Tallinn is the capital of Estonia. Estonia is a former Soviet Republic. And does anyone know what sea is next to it? The Baltics, yeah. So this questioner is from Estonia. And he says, is it permissible to pray Fajr Qada?" make up Fajr every day for some time when I'm not able to pray Fajr on the right time. For example, where I live in North and Fajr is so early that I wouldn't get enough sleep if I woke up for Fajr. So (laughs) this question does hit close to home and I have a little bit of experience with this question because for about five years I was... Uh, living in the country neighboring Estonia right across the Baltic living in Finland and Finland is even further north than Estonia so the struggles he's describing in the question are struggles I experienced directly in my time there because that region is so far north to give you an example of the prayer times in the winter Sunrise is about 9.20 in the morning, and Maghrib is probably 3.30, and then it gets dark straight away. Risha's is 4.35, and then it's dark all night until 9.30. But contrast that with the summer, you don't have a full sunset, or you don't have a full rotation, meaning, Maghrib comes at about 11.30 at night and you see the redness on the horizon and it doesn't disappear for quite a while. And while you're waiting for it to disappear on the west, you see the khayt al-abyad, <laughs> the white thread on the other side for fajr. This means that in those far northernly areas, in the summertime, Isha never comes in. So what do you do? I personally struggled with this for a a while until I kind of found my groove and I had things much easier than many people because my work schedule allowed me to essentially stay up until two in the morning and pray Fajr and I would just pray Maghrib at 11.30, Isha at about one, and then wait for Fajr at two and pray it and go to bed. And then I'll wake up at 10 o'clock and go about the rest of my day. Uh, but not everyone had that luxury, because if, imagine if you're a Muslim and you're trying to pray your prayers there and you have to be at work at seven in the morning. Fajr's in at two in the morning. So what? when do you go to bed? When is, number one, when is Isha? Right? When do you pray that? Let's say you pray it at uh, midnight. Then you have to get up at 2 o'clock. And then you have to get up at what? 6 or something? Do that every single day and you're going to see this is taking a toll on your health. So he's wondering what he should do. He's saying, should I do qada or not? So before I answer that specifically, I want to look at this issue and maybe this doesn't apply to any of you here, but maybe those who are watching, this will be of benefit to them. I know this is pertinent to people who live in far North Canada, maybe even in parts of the uh, parts of the UK, even this may apply. Now the early Fuqaha, the early jurist by and large didn't address this issue because they never encountered it. Perhaps the earliest mention of this issue is cited by Imam Ibn Abidin, one of the great Hanafi jurists, who mentions the issue in an essay that answers certain questions put to him by Muslims in Bulgaria. That seems to be one of the earliest discussions on the issue. So the issue is that, as we mentioned in the Farda'in class, the entering of the time for the prayer is a suburb for the obligation. It's a cause for the obligation. So if Isha never comes in in the summertime, the sabab has not appeared. Does that mean it's not wajib to pray Isha? That you pray Maghrib because it came in, and you pray Fajr because its time came in, but you don't pray Isha because it never came in? The answer to that is no. You still have to pray Isha, but why? We go back to what I said in the beginning of the first question. We look at everything through principles, through qawaid, maxims, guidelines, bawabit. Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, he mentions in Fath al-Bari that the primary text, the Nasus of Sharia pertain to the normal and common circumstances and not to what is uncommon. And he goes on to cite another Imam, Ibn Musayyid al nas Rahimahullah, who said the same thing. He said that the ahkam of Sharia are contingent upon what is common and not what is uncommon. So we go back to the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu and we find the hadith in which the angel Jibreel taught the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam prayer times. Those prayer times were taught to him. They were taught to the Sahaba and the Tabi'oon and all the relevant details were recorded in the books of the Fuqaha. And all of those details that we find in the books of the Fuqaha that they received from the the Sahaba, that they received from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, all of those details about the Awqat of salat pertain to normal days, not abnormal situations there's a different ruling for times or places when things are abnormal. And in those times and in those places, we are not to apply the normal ahkam. Those basic ahkam are for ordinary situations. So the uncommon and the exceptional circumstances do not fall under the general nusuls that talk about the prayer times. So, what this means is if we suggest a different way to calculate the prayer times for these northerly latitudes that seemingly go against the norm, we're not actually violating sharia, we are addressing the unique and exceptional circumstance. And that unique circumstance has a precedent and its principle is derived from a hadith of the Prophet. So, you know, everything I've said now is basically theory. The theory underpinning how we figure out how to obey Allah and pray our five prayers in those exceptional circumstances when we live in really northernly latitudes where there is no normal sunrise and sunset. So generally there are two views among the ulama about this issue. The first view says that you should abide by the timing of the prayers in Mecca or Medina. They say, if you, let's say you live in Sweden somewhere, and it's the summertime. You don't have a normal sunrise and sunset. What do you do? The first view says you would pray according to the prayer timing set in Mecca. So if they're praying Maghrib in Mecca at 6.45, you pray Maghrib at 6.45 your time, not Mecca time. You pray at your time. And you basically superimpose that prayer calendar, prayer timings over Sweden and how you pray. That's the first view. Why do they say Ummul Qura? Why do they say use Mecca? It's because Ummul Qura is not just the mother of the towns, it also has a leading role As establishing a kind of norm As a kind of qibla Not only for the direction of salat But also a sort of qibla For establishing a norm for prayer times That's their justification The second view says That you pray according to the timing Of the nearest region We could say country That has a normal sunrise and sunset And among those scholars who take this view, some of them will say the nearest Muslim country and some just say the nearest country, the nearest region that has a population where we can establish there is a normal sunrise and normal sunset. And I'm not sure what that would be for Estonia. It could be Germany, could be Turkey, if you look at the Muslim country. I, I don't know exactly, but it would mean for this brother, he could take the prayer time of say, a region in Germany, the closest region that has a normal sunrise and sunset and pray according to that. And likely this would have him praying Fajr and also getting adequate sleep and not missing Fajr. And he prays the rest of the prayers according to that until the fall and then the winter comes when in his own country there is a normal sunrise and sunset. So even this is a temporary measure just for the summer. Now, one of the former directors, the former heads of Al-Azhar-Sharif, a sheik Jaddul Haq, he talked about this issue in one of his fatawa, and he says that adopting the principle of estimating the prayer times, as well as the fasting hours, and disregarding the signs that determine the times, is based on a nos shar'i right so you're disregarding the actual su- sunrise and sunset and what happens you're disregarding the externals because it's abnormal and instead you're going to calculating estimating the time he's saying that that practice is based on a nass shar'i a legal text within the sharia what text is he talking about He's talking about the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where he mentions that when the Dajjal appears, there will be a time where the earth is enveloped in darkness for 40 plus days. And the Sahaba asked Ya Rasulullah, what do people do about prayer times? Because in that 40 days and beyond, the asbab, the, 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 the causes for the obligation of prayer aren't occurring. But they understood that oh, we still have to pray. So they asked the Prophet ﷺ what should they do when it's 40 days plus of absolute darkness and there's no sunrise, no sunset, a complete anomaly. And he said to estimate, لها, To estimate the prayer times. So you have a prior experience of when Fajr is, when Dhuhr is, when Asr is, and so on. For that period of time, you're estimating based on those times. So although the sabab, the the cause for obligation, doesn't appear, you're estimating and praying as if it is, using that estimation. So this, so Shaykh al Haq, he's saying that the hadith about the Dajjal and how you estimate the prayer times is no different from this issue faced by Muslims in Scandinavia, because they both share the same legal rationale, the same illah, and that is the illah of extreme variations and timings. Because either way, it's an extreme variation. And in both cases, you're, you're gonna estimate So this was his argument for why you should prefer to estimate following the the estimation of the nearest uh, Muslim country or country that has a normal sunrise and sunset or Mecca time. Either way you look at it, you're still estimating. You're taking the prayer time of another location and you're superimposing it over your location estimating that that would be the approximate time for each of those prayers. So this is the basic answer given by the majority of the ulema in today's time who approach this issue. If you look at it, go further north. There are parts near the North Pole where a day lasts for six months and a night lasts for six months. If you say that you can only pray based on the literal movement of the sun, that means that in certain regions in the North Pole, where a day is six months and a night is six months, how many times are you praying in a single year? You're going to pray five times. So for the six months of darkness, you're praying, you pray a Maghrib and Isha, and then in the six months of light, you're praying Fajr and Asa. What if you're in space? Uh, yeah, if you're in space. What, if you, what do you do if you're in space? There's a Malaysian astronaut And before him there was the Saudi astronaut Who wanted to know How do I face the Qibla in space So these are all Nawazil Right And I heard from one scholar That this issue Is perhaps Why Muslims did not go further north As they spread In trade and in da'wah Because they went far north And they saw The sunrise and sunset and they said no no thank you (laughs) They just left (laughs) at any rate but muslims are here now so we have to figure out what to do so going back to this brother's question pray according to the timings of the nearest country with a normal sunrise and sunset whether it's a non-muslim country or a muslim country that's your choice it's all ishtihad anyway Uh, personally i would just choose the nearest country regardless of whether the population is majority muslim or not so for Estonia, that might be that might be Germany, I'm not entirely sure, but you'd have to check and find out. Take those prayer times, and inshallah, if you pray according to those times, you should be able to pray Isha, and get to bed at a reasonable hour, and get up for Fajr according to that timing, and pray and not have to struggle with missing the prayer due to sheer exhaustion and having to make it up later. And if you've missed those prayers before and you pray them with the intention of qada, uh, that's fine. But moving forward, I would advise you to take this position as this is the position held by most of the ulama who talk about the issue. Wallahu a'alam. Okay, the next question. This one says, "Assalamu alaikum, Imam, I hope you're well. I have a few questions for you. It's actually one question. Long time ago, one of my father's friends gave him a relatively large amount of money as a capital to start a business. He told my father that he can pay it back whenever he has the money. That friend went to a different country and time passed and somehow the two friends lost connection. That business did well for a long time and eventually filed bankruptcy due to strict regulations. Now I want to pay that money back, but we cannot find that friend to pay the money back. We lost connection a long time ago. What would you suggest doing in this case? How can we pay the money back? Does my father answer Allah for failing to pay that money back if we cannot find that friend? So basically, the questioner wants to pay their father's debt But they cannot find the one who loaned the father the money. So, what do they do as the son or daughter? If a person borrows money from someone, and when that person is able to pay them back, they're unable to find the lender, that person should exercise due diligence to look for that person and ask around to determine where he might have moved to and wait. Some time to see if he may return to the area where they live or they may find some other means of contacting that person. So they should hold that money and wait to see him. But if a person is unable to locate the lender to pay the money back after trying and exhausting as many means as possible and waiting, if they waited a long time and they're fairly sure they're never going to encounter this person again. What do they do with the money? Because it's not their money. In this case, the ulama say, you give that money in sadaqah, but it's not your sadaqah, because it's not your money. You give it as a sadaqah on behalf of the lender. So you give this for a charitable cause such as could be constructing a masjid, building an Islamic institute, some feeding the poor and the needy, the homeless, some general charitable cause. You give that money with the intention of sadaqah on behalf of the lender. And inshallah, the reward of that sadaqah goes on the scale of the lender, and he will receive that reward on the Day of Judgment, inshallah. However, the big however, what happens if that person shows up later? You give the sadaqah. You've waited five years looking for this person and they've vanished from the face of the earth. You've exhausted all the means. And you say, you know what? I don't want to hold this money any longer. I'm going to give it in sadaqah on behalf of that person. And inshallah, they have that reward on the day of judgment. And you go and you find a charitable cause and you give the money. And then one year later, you get a phone call. It's the lender They want the money back What do you do? Now the straightforward answer is Let's say you went into debt And you were paying him back If you gave that money in salaqah, It wasn't with his approval But you did it because you couldn't find him Now that he's come back If he asks about the money You have to tell him I gave that money in salaqah." He has two choices. He can either accept the money as sadaqah and leave the matter and keep the reward. Or if he wants, he can say, mm, no, I need the money. And guess what? You gotta pay the money. Because that choice to give the sadaqa it wasn't with his consent. It was only because you exhausted all of the means to find him. And you were reasonably certain you weren't ever going to encounter him again. If he was to come back and ask, you you pay him back. You find a way. So the questioner is not asking about a debt they incurred. They're asking about a debt their father incurred. The father incurred this debt. They have the money for it to pay it back to the lender, but they can't find him. So what do they do? This person wants to discharge this for their... <coughs> Father who's now deceased. I would advise this person to do their utmost to look for the lender. Take your time, don't rush through that. Exhaust as many resources as possible to locate that person. Enlist the help of others who might be able to advise you on how to locate that person. Because sometimes we don't know how how to find people but maybe others would have resources to assist. Take your time with that, so that hopefully you can find that person. But if after exhausting all of these resources, you're unable to find that person, and you're reasonably certain that you will not be able to locate them in the future, give the money in sadaqah on behalf of that lender with the intention that this is the money your father intended to pay back to that person, or was supposed to pay back to that person, but we couldn't find them, so we give this as sadaqah, so the reward is with that person, and hopefully the debt is absolved, and the father is free of that burden in the hereafter, and the lender has a great reward in the hereafter as well. Wallahu All Alright. Come to the... Last question, number five. This is my favorite question of the night. This one says, I'm new to the area. What is the madhhab or manhaj in which your masjid is upon? Do you follow the Qur'an and sunnah based upon the understanding of the pious predecessors, the salaf so this is a very short question. When you compare it to the previous questions, it's relatively short. But there's a lot in there that has to be unpacked. So we start with a really basic point. In Surah Jinn, Allah tells us that the masajid belong to Allah. The masjid is Baytullah, it is the house of Allah. This means that any Muslim is welcome to come and pray and participate in the programs here at this masjid. Any Muslim is welcome. That is the open door policy and all masajids should be that way. In fact, in some of the madahib, they mention that if you limit people who can come and not come, if you say this, pe- this this person can come to the masjid and that person cannot. If you have jum'ah in that kind of masjid, the jum'ah is batila. This is a, actually a Hanafi view. So if you say these guys can come to the masjid for jum'ah but not those guys, and you lock the doors to them, everyone inside the musalla in that masjid, their jum'ah is batila, it's invalid. So, the masajid, as a general rule, have to be welcoming to all of the Muslims. But masajid have idara. Masajid have, in, in this context in North America, we're not running masajid through the wizar al-Awqaf, through the, the Ministry of Endowments and Islamic Affairs, where the masajid are ran essentially by the Sultan. There's no Sultan in the West. We are quite literally, Islamically speaking, in the wild, wild west. So we do have to have some idara, some management. There has to be people who manage these sacred spaces. So as the masjid is concerned, it's welcoming to anyone and everyone who comes to pray and learn and benefit. As far as the masjid's official orientation, it should be quite obvious that our official orientation are, whether you want to call that the madhab, the, the maslak, the manhaj, it is ahl sunnah wal jama'a, broadly representing this broad umbrella of what we call sunni Islam. So ahl sunnah wal jama'a, the people of the sunnah, the way of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi and the community. That is what this masjid is upon. It represents the broad umbrella of Sunni Islam. So, ahl sunnah wal jama'ah, we mean, aqeedatan wa fiqhan theologically, jurisprudentially, legally, and spiritually. So theologically, aqeedatan, this means, principled adherence to the broad, acceptable, Creedal positions of Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'a, as organized, preserved, defended, and transmitted by the great theological schools in Sunni Islam, represented by the efforts of the school of Imam Abul Hasan al Ash'ari, Imam Abul Mansur al Maturidi, and the Fadlal al Hanabila, meaning the true and principled followers of the textualist approach of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal رضي These are the three broad strands of Sunni Islam in terms of theology. That's what we represent. These three schools were not inventing a new creed, but were articulating and defending the principles of the creed held in their, the times before them. So that is on the theological front. Now, legally, or jurisprudentially, fiqhan, in fiqh, we say Ahl sunnah wal-Jama'ah legally upholding, respecting, and taking from the four recognized schools of Sunni jurisprudence. The schools of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik ibn Anas, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Taking from these four schools, while respecting the valid differences of opinion based on ijtihad. Free of ta'asub, free of bigotry, free of any madhab, fanaticism, neither shunning the four schools and claiming hum rijal wa nahnu they are men and we are men, neither shunning them, nor recreating the wheel to make a new fiqh nor casting aside the vast legal heritage of Sunni Islam in favor of a handful of modern scholars, nor forcing people to stick to a single school of law on every single issue and forbidding them from exiting that. We don't take either position. It is a balanced approach. It is the approach of the Siwadul A'adham, the overwhelming majority of the Ummah from time immemorial. So we are Ahl-Sunnah, Aqeedatan, Wa-Fiqhan, also in spirituality, meaning, we recognize Ihsan, or spirituality, as the third component of the deen, as described in the hadith of Jibril alayhi salam, when he came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi and asked him to tell him about Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. Iman is the aqidah component, Islam is the fiqh component, and Ihsan is the spiritual component. Whether we call it Ihsan, or Tazkiyah, or Tasawwuf, or Suluk, La mashahata fil The The issue is not the technical term used, it is the meaning intended by it. So we affirm that as a part of our Sunni tradition. So we affirm this in a principled manner, meaning It is based on the Sunni foundations of creed, the Sunni foundations of law, and is free of blameworthy innovations, and free of fakery, and free of charlatanism and cults. Those are the broad principles that make Ahl-Sunnah Ahl-Sunnah. So anyone who adheres to those broad principles is a Sunni, generally speaking. And that is what we hold to here. Now, we believe that, from the way I described it, that these are the Ummah's very best attempts to organize and present the general acceptable understandings of the earliest generations. Notice I said understandings with a s, plural. Not fahm, but fuhum. And there's a reason why I say that, because we don't believe that the Ummah of the Prophet ﷺ was guided in the very beginning for the first three generations, and soon after in the fourth and fifth, the Ummah was completely lost and astray and wallowing in the darkness of innovation, bigotry, and shirk. Until 200 years ago, someone came and Re- magically revived, not so magically, but revived Tawheed that was completely unknown to the Ummah for the most part for over a millennia. We don't believe that. That's absolute nonsense. We don't believe anyone came 200 years ago and rediscovered Al-Aqeedatul Sahihah, the authentic creed that the Ummah had lost for a thousand years. That's absolute nonsense. La tajtami'u Ummati My ummah does not unite upon misguidance. Likewise, we don't believe that the three generations of the early Muslims, whom we call as al salih, or as-salaf, the pious predecessors, we don't believe that that those three early generations constitute a single unified understanding in all matters. Because the questioner says, Do you follow the Quran and the Sunnah according to the understanding of the Salaf? Right? Ettiba'u al kitabi wa sunnah ala fahm Salaf al And I say, There's no fahm of the Salaf al Salih, but there's fuhum. There are understandings among the Salaf al Salih. Because if you look at this from an Usuli perspective, in legal theory, the usulis differ about whether qaul al-Sahabi is a hujja or not. Is the statement of a companion considered a legal proof in sharia or not? If this this sahabi says something in matters of law, does his statement constitute a hujja in sharia? Well, the usulis differ about this. Some affirmed it as a hujja with conditions, Others did not So if the statement of a Sahabi Is not necessarily a hujja, What about the statements of those from the tabi'un? What about the statements of the atba' tabieen from the third generation? Famin babi aula, Even more so Their understandings are not going to constitute A proof that is binding over the rest of the Ummah So they differed among themselves When we say the fahm, the understanding of the salaf al-salih, we understand that it was not a single understanding, but there were multiple understandings. Now, they differed among themselves. So if you say you have to follow the Qur'an and the sunnah according to the understanding in the singular, what do you do when they differ? That's number one. Number two, when you say, الصالح, the understanding of the salaf al-salih whose understanding because in that same time period in the three generations you have the emergence of the khawarij the qadaria the murji'a the jabriyya the nawasib all of these different groups emerged in that time period that also saw the tabi'un and the atba tabi'in so if you say you have to follow the salaf as a a time period, زمنية, does that mean you follow this one? Okay, this one may be qadari this one may be murji, this may be khariji, rafidi. So you can't say that the, the time period locks in a singular understanding of all matters Islam. That's not how the ulama have ever approached it. So it's inaccurate to say that you have to follow the Quran and the Sunnah according to the understanding of the sadaf because there is no unified understanding the only understanding you have to follow is clear-cut ijma, clear-cut consensus and that is few and far in between in the various issues that people differ over there's very few issues where there's that kind of ijma, and no one's really going against that Ijma'ah from Ahl-Sunnah. So it's a mute point. So the Sadaf themselves differed among, they differed among themselves. They didn't subscribe to a single understanding in lots of legal matters. And they even differed in some of the f- Furu' al aqida. They even had certain minor differences. So that's the, that's the general answer. But looking at that question, the question or what he's getting at, if you read between the lines, he's basically asking Is the masjid officially Salafi? Are you Salafi? And the answer is of course no, right? Nonetheless, every single Muslim is welcome to come here and pray here and learn and participate and enjoy the fruits of brotherhood and partake in the programs of the community. You know, it's not a secret. I mean, Maybe it is to some people. It's not a secret that I'm not exactly some Sadafi guy, right? I have a lot of experience with them. Some of my teachers were, and I had a lot of good experiences too. I adhere to the methodology of Ahl Sunnah in the widest sense, the Siwad al A'adham, the majority of the Ummah in creed, in law, in spirituality. And I do believe that, yes, let's be honest, I believe that the the Sadafi methodology is flawed and errant in several ways. I believe it diverges in many significant ways from the actual Sunni approach to theology, law, and spirituality. But on a personal level, I would like to believe, inshallah, that I am a fair-minded person and that I'm open to discuss with any person who is sincere and not living in a sectarian bubble. I have strong disagreements with that particular methodology in a variety of issues, but my role is not to pounce on anyone or attack them just because they disagree with me or I disagree with them. That's not my role. My role is to educate. My role is to continuously strive to my utmost with Allah's enabling grace to convey inshallah with some wisdom the principles of Sunnah wal Jama'a in a holistic manner so to the questioner this is all anonymous they said they just moved here so I have an idea who it might be but I'm not entirely sure so I say to the questioner personally if you have any further questions if you have any objections to my answer that's okay please feel free to stop by and have a conversation with me I'm open to having a conversation. I'm open to people's objections because it is far better for us as a community to be mature about our differences instead of talking about one another behind our backs, instead of spreading gossip, innuendo, spreading tales, or engaging in childish boycotts and character assassination. I'm not saying the questioner does any of that. I'm just saying in general, We have to elevate our discourse as a community, right? Which means that if you differ with someone, first, differ with some basis, differ with ilm, and be able to articulate your position, and be able to articulate the position you disagree with as accurately as they would describe it, right? Don't, you know, straw man your opponent where... Oh, this person is this and that. And you use the worst descriptions and you construct an idea that they don't believe and you tear it down and say, yeah, see, that's what they believe. No. The principle of insaf, of fairness, is that if you disagree with someone about a matter, whether it's theology or law or whatever, for you to be fair-minded, you have to be able to articulate their position just as accurately, if not more accurately, than they would. Imam al-Ghazali, and I end on this, Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah, he spent a good amount of time because he wanted to deal with the greatest threat facing the ummah of his, at his time. What was the greatest threat facing the ummah in his time intellectually? It was the batiniyyah, what we call the ismailiyya today. So, and then after that came the Falasifa, the philosophers. If the Balatiniya had succeeded, we would all be like Ismailis, where there's no salah, there's no zakat, it's all esoteric, it's all symbolic. Deen would have been gone. If the philosophers would have won the intellectual debates of the day, then we would all be secularists, and we, we would have become just like modern-day Europe. Their history of Christianity, going from Christianity to secularism, was through that means. That would have happened to us. So Imam al-Ghazali had to deal with these two major threats. But what did he say? He mentions in al-Munqid min al-Dhalal that he knew that he had to master their ideas and understand them and be able to articulate them better than their proponents because you cannot address you cannot respond to an intellectual challenge by misrepresenting the views of your opponents because they know what they believe and when you misrepresent it how are they going to take you seriously so it's not that we want debate but you know if you want to have hiwar and discourse it has to be based on knowledge it has to be based on fairness it has to be based on accuracy so you know that's the, the long answer and the reason why the answer is so long is because it's one of those things that comes up time and again. We don't make any apologies for what we believe. We make ijtihad, we seek Allah's pleasure, we seek Allah's guidance in pursuing the truth, and we ask Allah to guide us and show us the truth as truth and enable us to follow it. You cling to the majority, you cling to the sawad al-a'adham, ahl sunnati wal jama'a. avoid sectarianism, avoid uh, fanaticism, avoid argumentation with people and debating things that are above your pay grade and inshallah you you leave the dunya in salama with peace and well-being and you don't embroil yourself in things that cause you regret later on in life when you educate yourself when you learn and grow and look back and think wow that was a really immature thing i said back then or that idea that i used to have take the time to educate yourself and grow and be open to learning and get out of the sectarian and ideological bubbles that we we surround ourselves in wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam